Hello and welcome to the weekly reboot or regular Friday debrief coming from the Agile community here in Melbourne and beyond. We're back and we have a great little interview today from Craig Brown, well-known contributor to the Agile community in here in Australia. Craig runs a company called Everest and is also an initiator of lots of popular and excellent community events such as the Marvelous Last Conference and there's quite a bit of information about Last Conference at the end of our podcast today so stay tuned until the end for that. Hi Craig. Good afternoon. Welcome to the weekly reboot. Um, so the kind of things I was going to ask you is your background. I was going to ask you about like, Iconics because I think it was right. for so long but you can either cover it in your background or I might dig into it a bit because because they've been bought. I want to ask your opinion on that. When I left Did Oracle. you sign something? I signed documents that say I wouldn't disparage the uh, brand. Okay, we'll keep that in then. <laughs> um, Not that I've got anything particularly against Oracle. It is what it is. It's just the type of organisation, right? And you know, I don't think you should really kind of you know, imbue particular companies with a, you know, a moral state, right? Yeah. They're just a collection of people doing stuff, and it's a system that interacts, and eventually it kind of ossifies and locks, locks itself into a way. Yeah. Um, and then that's just the natural way mm. the organisation is. Somebody, I don't know who it was, said, I can't remember where I picked this up, but it's something that I reckon is really true, which is um, a company kind of matures at a certain time and place, right? And then that's its personality, mm. right? Or that's its kind of default culture, right? And then from then on, um, the default culture will only ever change if something really radical and disruptive happens to it, mm. right? Um, so if a company manifests itself as its kind of you know, successful entity in 1982 in North America, then it's kind of got that personality, and it always will have, unless something radically changes it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's... So a little bit um, what? cheesy, wearing pastel colours, driving fast cars. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's some other line out there that says, it's one of those systems thinking things, probably came out of the Lean Kanban crowd, but um, an organisation... An organisation can only be as mature as the leadership of that organisation. Mm. Right? So, yeah. So, if you are that shouty man, mm. that's going to be the personality of your organisation. If you're the CEO, right? so. yeah, he doesn't say very nice things about other companies, does he? In the press, who's that? The guy who's the CEO of Oracle, Larry, or yeah. the other guy? Oh, the, his name escapes me, but the one who's always hanging out on Amazon. Yeah, yeah right. Oh, uh, whatever. I don't really pay attention to what goes on at Oracle. Okay. And thank you for chatting to us today. So uh, before we talk any more, just tell me a little bit about you and your background. I I feel like I heard a bit when we did the 10th birthday celebrations, a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know about you that put all of your Hawaiian shirts into context for me. (laughs) You come from Sydney, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that that the Hawaiian shirt links? Yeah, yeah. I grew up north of Sydney in the Central Coast, um, which was, yes, all beaches and, um, of course, Hawaiian shirts. Um, so after I went to Newcastle University and then after that bummed around on the Central Coast for a little while doing, you know, uh, making jobs mm-hmm. and then eventually ended up working at Optus and, you know, started as a call centre help desk person and then got put in a process improvement team and then started doing IT projects and BA and PM work and eventually ended up contracting you know, to other companies as well and uh, eventually after many years uh, ended up working as the engineering manager in Aconex. Uh, then that kind of grew into a global role as the company you know, grew. Um, it was kind of organically growing its product development team in Melbourne and, 
and in India, and then through acquisitions, picked up teams in North America, Europe, and uh, and Sydney of all places. Mm. Yeah, and then um, tail end of last year, Ranganathan, uh, who was our um, manager of our Indian office, um, contacted me and said, "Hey, Craig, let's uh, let's go into business together and start a company." And that's where we started Everest mm. Engineering. So we we recruited a handful of software developers that we knew. Um, and we've since recruited a bunch more and started off focusing our um, efforts at startups or, or kind of, yeah, slightly post-startup. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're kind of, as we've grown, now we've got the capacity and the, and the ability to work with larger companies as well. So, yeah, yeah at first you start because you're tiny, you're like, you know, six people, so you work with small companies. Mm-hmm. And then as you grow, you can kind of, you know, grow the type of customers that you work with as well. Yeah, it's yeah. very much a... Yeah, you have to kind of see what the customer wants and needs. Yeah. So you worked with Indian offshore developers at Aconex. Yeah. And and you thought, well, I actually this can work. So yeah. Well, we didn't come think on and do of, more of that. I, I didn't really think of the Indian team as offshore. I just thought of them as the Bangalore team, right? Yeah. There was the Sydney team, the Bangalore team, the Munich team, the San Francisco team. Right. And the common thing to them all is they weren't in Melbourne, which was the head office. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that you experience when you work in the not head office is a whole bunch of decisions get made on your behalf and you're not necessarily present mm-hmm. to advocate your interests or you know, apply your expertise to those conversations. So in my job, I used to fly around the world and hang out in the other offices. And um, part of it's you know, turning up and understanding the needs on the, on the, on the ground. And, um, and sometimes they're little things and sometimes they're big things. And sometimes it's just someone from head office has come to you know, pay attention to us and listen to us, mm. and, and it's great. And yeah, and you build personal relationships with people. Um, you would elaborate and explain the kind of mission and story stuff that you know in the half-hour presentations doesn't necessarily get fully fleshed out. So you know, it's follow-through on purpose and mission. Um, and then you'd go back to the head office in Melbourne, and then you would be in those strategic conversations and those big deal conversations, and you would know the agendas and interests of those regional offices and you would speak on behalf of them mm-hmm. so that their voice gets included. Yeah, and that um, doesn't always mean speaking on their behalf literally. Sometimes mm-hmm. it means, hang on a minute, let's get this person from this place into this conversation. Mm-hmm. Right? But, you know, um, there was no offshore. There was like a global team. Yeah, right. And so you were already global. Um, yeah. well, when, when, when I started, there was, it was mainly Melbourne and there was maybe eight or nine people in in Bangalore, yeah. right? And a couple of weeks into me uh, joining the team, I flew over to Bangalore and met mm. them there, and Bruce Taylor was over there, an ex-Melbourne mm. person living in India. Yeah, he's back in Melbourne. And um, yeah, he was welcoming and introduced me to his teammates, and in particular, Abdul, who is his you know, tech lead or engineering manager in the office. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, and we just talked about what's going on there and what they're working on. And yeah, you, know, you get that puzzle of, Oh, we all want to work on our own thing, you know, our own domain, build up domain expertise, build up an understanding of the customer problems and processes, um, and then also the code base that we're working on, so we build that, that depth, mm-hmm. um, versus the tension of like, well, actually, as a growing business, you know, we need to throw everything at our new most important thing, and then it's got to change again in 18 months or six months or whatever you know, the cycle is on that particular thing. And so balancing the tension between, you know, um, the, the yield you get out of knowing the territory you're operating versus the priorities of the business. So, mm. yeah, so that was something that was always mm. always a tension and never properly resolved. But yeah. you know, I don't think you have to <laughs> properly resolve these things. Instead, building up an appreciation for 
sometimes you just have to do stuff, yeah. right? And not getting too precious about the rules of the game. Yeah. Instead, just like focusing on what you need to do to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how long were your Iconics for? Uh, oh, yeah, about five and a half years. Yeah. yeah. And how long have you been doing Everest for? Seven months. Brilliant. And how yeah. has that been, starting a new company? Uh, it feels exhausting. <laughs> it is right? exhausting, yeah. <laughs> well, working with a global company was pretty exhausting because sometimes yeah. you had to cover 24 hours, particularly we were going through another growth spurt towards the end of it before Oracle bought it. And, yeah. Um, uh, you know, like when that happens, you want the frontline people to kind of be rested and focused and, you know, able to do their job. But mm. the manage- so the management team then kind of wear the stretch, right? Yeah. And then you'll, you'll hire more people to get work done. But meanwhile, managers are covering stuff. So yeah. for a stretch before I left Aconex, I was... I was probably working like 70 hour weeks for a good period of time and it was pretty exhausting. That's an observation I have of people, managers in particular with yeah. the offshore workers that like often I'll be, I'll be going home and I'll see them jumping into an empty meeting room and starting yeah. a video chat with yeah, yeah. their teams. And, and, and different people. Like I mean when 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 you're in that stretch phase, yeah. of, like you're just growing to accommodate a broader patch, mm. um, you, you, you end up naturally putting more hours on because you'd rather do that than then delegate stuff because you want to kind of hang on to mm. you know the responsibility yourself or you know you don't want to waste people's time by going, you know teaching them how to do a thing mm. or whatever but um but a lot of people kind of find their rhythm once it's stable mm. so you get people that different people do different things you know you can start the day late or you know there was one period where I was working with people in San Francisco and then people in India and then people in my last call of the day was 11:30 at night with with England so start the morning at I think it was seven with with San Francisco and you know eleven thirty with England, and um, that was one particular day that I just kind of stacked up as a really long day. But then the day after, you know, I just kind of get into work when I felt like it, which yeah. might be eleven, might be two, it didn't yeah, really matter because. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then other people, I've like you know different people tell different stories. You know, um, you know one guy I know just kind of clocks off. He, he starts at eight eight thirty in the morning. Works through till about ten thirty, then clocks off, and then clocks on again at four in the afternoon. Yep. Right, and then just goes out and does stuff, goes bike riding, swimming, whatever he wants to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm listening a lot to the Lizette Sutherland podcast, and yeah. you know, watching Envato and yeah. some of these other companies working with remote, and I can see the world of remote working yeah. maturing and growing, and that becoming more accepted. It's yeah. People understand you're not going to see people sitting in the same spots all the time working right. away. Yeah, and I like. I mean, I was talking to some people. I was doing some public speaking event a while back, and the question came at me of um, what's the difference between remote working and working together? Mm. And I thought, well, the way I answered it was like, you have to be more mindful and proactive about your communication because people can't see you. So you have to raise the the awareness that you want to talk about something, not just talk about it, right? Or they're not in front of you, so you might just sit quietly, but you have to go, well, that's not right, I have to speak, or I have to type into Slack, or whatever mm. I have to do. So really, I think it's just, the gap is the communication skills and, and specifically the proactiveness to utter something, mm. right? Even if you don't know what you're going to say, to just go, um... A I bit think, of thinking out loud I, stuff. Yeah, yeah, so that thinking out loud. You know, t- I remember testers you know, years ago were talking about test out loud and yeah. you know, as, you're, as you're doing things, you'd record what you're doing and talk out loud about it. Yeah. And then later when you're kind of trying to root cause it, you'd, you'd hear the thinking that's going on at the time. Mm. And then, um, yeah, and I, like I think that's it really, just like kind of a mindfulness and a proactiveness around communication. And, and um, of course, the other one is like being um, comfortable 
speaking without knowing what you're going to say, mm-hmm. right? And I think that the younger you are and the less mature or confident you are in your, your professional skills, the less likely you want to expose your ignorance. But those of us that have worked for a lot of years know that exposing your ignorance fast is the best way to move forward. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of teaching people that as a skill mm. helps them accelerate in their performance. Yeah. yeah. So what would you say is um, different about Everest? Like, what's your tagline for a start? Because I quite like that. Do you know what our tagline is? Uh, in software engineering, when you want it. Yeah, right. Cool. So we um, we've got a good we've got a good network of really highly talented software developers in uh, in India and in Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, and so we're recruiting in Hyderabad, Bangalore, and, and Melbourne. Um, and you know, I guess the the core idea behind our business is that there's not enough software developers around to do all the work, and then. As you know, with the agile transformation thing that's happened, right? You know, and and not just that, but the digital transformation and the and the recognize uh, recognition that that service businesses and even s- sort of information businesses um, are going to be such a huge part of the future economy, right? It's a core skill that you got to have, and you can no longer have that cut and paste type mentality that you know um, large. Our offshore service providers you know, provided mm. in the past to banks and insurance companies and telcos yeah. and stuff, right? You know, you now need to have people that know how to understand a problem and how to practically contribute to it and and, and, and generate outcomes, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so what what we do is we staff ourselves with that type of person. Mm-hmm. We know that there's not enough people in Australia to do that work. Um, luckily, India is a really large country and. Uh, even though there's kind of stories with offshore development gone wrong, mm. um, there's a huge network of really talented people in that country. Um, mm. Bangalore is like one of those kind of top cities in the world for mm. startups, like millions and millions of dollars going to it each month into investments into startups. They then service not just the Indian market, but the Asian market and you know, the whole world in some instances with some great products. Um, you know, I guess scale and performance at scale is like a key issue in these skill sets, mm. right? So being able to, you know, yield, you know, service hundreds of thousands of customers or even millions of customers is, mm-hmm. is important, right? You know, IT systems that handle your organization's 600 staff, mm-hmm. it's a totally different game, right? Mm. So, yeah. So they're your employees, Everest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone we work with is employed by us, except okay. for occasionally in Melbourne we subcontract someone for mm. the short-term gigs. Um, yeah, yeah. And so it's almost like a, an on-demand or maybe only started that way yeah. for, for companies that needed to... And you sort of... I, I feel like you've got the high-performing team ready to go. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we, yeah, we've got coming up on 50 people on mm. our team um, in the near future, in the next couple of weeks. And, um, uh, yeah, so we've got a kind of a bench there that, you know, you can deploy a team of four people fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted 20 people, that might take us a bit of time to line up. But yeah. we can get started with a small set and then yeah. ramp it up. And those are people that have probably worked together. You've yeah. got some common work practices. That's right, that's right. And there's, you know, our, our, like, our team have got, like, a, the, the management paradigm is coaching. So everyone gets re- regular um, coaching sessions with a the manager. There's peer review sessions. So, you know, not only are you getting pull requests to with your customer but you, you know you're getting peer review on site as well um, and then uh, you know things like um, understanding the domain so we have business analysts that like will not just talk to the customer but like you know really kind of work with the team to understand the domain um, so that's, that's particularly interesting if it's a highly regulated kind of industry because you know there's a lot of knowledge that's really inherent in in the people that work in that industry that mm. they don't necessarily get out 
but then we have people that research it so that that domain knowledge is local to the software teams as well. Mm-hmm. And then and then the other one is like um, our office in, in Bangalore, and we're, we're about to open, and we're in a co-working space in Hyderabad at the moment, but we're about to open a, an office there as well. But it's a hub for meetups, so mm-hmm. tech meetups and Pecha Kucha nights. And, you know, mm, um, I remember Pecha Kucha. Yeah, people still do that. Yeah, and lightning talks. Oh, and so, you know, um, and, and there are a variety of skills too, so they're not all technical, like a lot of it's, you know, it's basically half technical, half communication skills. Yeah. So, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Hey, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, because I've, I've talked to your other partner in crime, Ed Wong, mm-hmm. and um, I wanted to ask you about your association with Ed and Last Conference, and we're coming up, Last Conference, very close on the horizons. Yeah. It'd be good to talk about that. Yeah. Ed told me this morning, we've got a wait list for Last Conference of over 100 people right now. Holy moly. So sorry to everyone that couldn't get a ticket. I know, so I've got to stop advertising it. Yeah. So, um, Wow. So, and it's only one day this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was just a scheduling issue. The university, right. Swinburne University, um, hosts the venue for free. Yeah, and, right. um, yeah. They've been a sponsor of the event since the beginning. I actually worked at Swinburne when we started the event. Ah, um, so this, uh, this is how it all came about. Yeah, and one day I was with the staff in the IT department, and I, I called them all together in front of a board, and I was going to use some agile principles to talk about our professional development plan, <laughs> i.e. Let's call it out and talk about it as a collective group rather than have a whole bunch of one-on-one conversations, right? Yeah, so that way we can see and understand what each other's agendas are and what each other's intentions are. Yeah. And I stood in front of the team and I said, so what are you going to do if you're professional development? And they said, nothing. We never do. Why is that? Well, well they, they, they got budgeted discounts on, they got given discounts on university courses, right? Mm. But no budget for professional development. Um, yeah, the university at that time was like, you know, um, grinding its costs down. Mm. Um, it was trying to find an equilibrium, like, you know, the education business was kind of being a bit, it had been fast growth for a while, but mm. it was getting a bit wobbly. So I guess people were just being fiscally conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, given that, we decided to, we had this wonderful network of meetups in Melbourne. So we invited people from a bunch of the meetups to come together and we set up a building for a day. And I think you were at the first one. So then we, maybe you weren't. Shame on you. Um, we ran that first event. It was like, you know, I don't know, 40 speakers or something. And that was weird at the time. And um, yeah, and people had a good day. So we ran it a second time. And, mm-hmm. yeah, and the people that worked for me at the university were really appreciative of it and had a yeah. really good day. And of course, you know, a lot of them were, you know, middle-aged or a bit older and had kids and they couldn't, you know, go to, and, and Hawthorne's out of the city. Mm. So they couldn't access the meetup network. So this day, this nine to five version of the meetups was really useful. Mm. And then we did it a second time, it got bigger, and then we did it a second time, and it got bigger, and then eventually we had one which was like, I think, 850, 900 people, and we went, oh, that's a bit big. So we've shrunk it down a little bit just to try to keep that vibe of like, we're all a collective yeah. community thing. I definitely um, went to that bit big one. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of it? Oh, I loved it. Right. I mean, it's a bit, I can imagine how it would have been a little bit hard to handle. Yeah, well, and... Uh, because and it's such a, I mean, there's lots of things about it I love. And I've just read the handbook for this year, and mm. one of the things it says is we we talk we say your presenters, not speakers, mm-hmm. because we want you to be part of the community and part of organising it. So it has yeah. really got that. If something needs doing, yeah. you're not just a um, a precious snowflake speaker wandering around waiting for your slot. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Grab and, a bin and, and pick up that rubbish, or exactly right. help that person plug in their audio and get mm. it working, or their visual. And we draw on the speakers stuff. to help each other a lot. Yeah. And um, yeah, and right from the very beginning, right, at the end of morning tea, lunch and afternoon tea, uh, Paul Dealey, Ed Wong and myself 
cruise through the venue, pick up rubbish, put stuff in bins, and then at the end of the day, we're going through all the rooms and lining up the chairs and tidying up everything, and like everyone else goes off to the pub, and then we spend an hour <laughs> cleaning up, right? So it's pretty, you know, it's smell of an oily rag. It's yeah. not like we have kind of lots of staff or anything Which is like why that. it's so, still so affordable, which is yeah. a breath, breath of fresh air since yeah. conferences are getting mighty expensive these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it'll always be cheap because it's a community-driven event. Um, the sponsors are really useful. Like, without mm. the sponsors, we couldn't run it. Um, so, you know, um, the tickets are around 170-ish bucks, I think. But um, it costs slightly more than that to run it. Mm. And um, so the sponsors kind of cover the, you know, make it affordable. Because yeah. right? what's missing is the preparation time. Yeah, right. So, the, you know, the weeks or months of, you know, lining it all up. Yeah, it's quite um, amusing. When you, yeah. I mean, you do a great job, but sometimes you have to wait to get a message back about, hey, how does this work again? Ask it. How does this work? It's coming in the handbook. But it's yeah, because we've all got our day jobs. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing I was going to mention, though, is what is it about you that that whole by the community thing seems very much in your DNA? Yeah. Well, and, you know, like, I don't know where it comes from. It's just don't be an asshole in life. <laughs> yeah. Try to help other people. Yeah, I, I grew up on the central coast of New South Wales. My parents were divorced when I was seven years old. Mum worked really hard. Um, she brought us up. You know, we went to the local suburban school. It was all right. You know, um, had a group of friends. We used to play D and D on a Saturday for like two or three years. And you were Stranger Things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then you go to the beach and you hang out and do that stuff as well. And then you know, we turned eighteen, nineteen, went off to university, drank a lot of beer, and did all that university type of stuff. And yeah, I, I, that was all very normal, right? I was yeah. nothing outstanding. And what did you, you study at uni? Uh, I started with an arts degree and then I switched over to a business degree because of the commute. So where I lived, I opened a new <laughs> campus and there was a business degree, so I went and did that. Um, so my, my choice in my first undergraduate degree was it was a 15-minute drive instead of an hour-long one. Right? So it's true to say that you were very driven by the university lifestyle, maybe rather than... Um, I, I was a... I was a six out of ten student, right? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I should have done a law degree because in a law degree, all you need is fifty-one percent, right? <laughs> Even in a case, you know, really? you just got to have the balance of probabilities, right? So, um, but you know, it's all just lifestyle and fun and stuff. And then I started working, and I think, I think part of it is um, just not really being inwardly focused, more mm. just being interested in the people around you. Right, and then for whatever reason, that's been fairly successful for me, just generally. Mm-hmm. Right, like I enjoy spending time with other people, and I enjoy it when other people are successful. Right, and it's just nice. And then, like, if they're successful, sometimes that blows back on you, and you get some of the success. Sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. Um, you know, I, I, I was on a panel with um, James Ross and some other people a while back and somebody from ANZ, this a couple of years ago, somebody from ANZ said, yeah, what about this Agile thing? You know, what should we do? And I think both of us almost said the same thing at the same time, which is, don't worry about what other people are doing, just be good at your job, right? And if you get really good at your job, then that sets an example to the people around you and then they can be good at their job and then that ripple effect will just make everything better. Hmm. And instead of worrying about what you call things or ceremonies or sprints or any of that sort of stuff, like while there's goodness in those techniques, hmm. ultimately just turning up and trying to be engaged in your work and doing a good job is a great start. Yeah. Hmm. It's very true. Yeah. You don't seem to be particularly aligned to any particular dogma or religion or brand or flavour. Yeah. What's your, but do you even have a view of those... Um, Frameworks and uh, 
trademark pyramid schemes. Yeah, yeah, broadly, I think there's good in a lot of those ideas. You know, at one point, somebody's had a good idea and they've gone, right, this is solving problems for me. And then other people have stumbled across it and they've gone, I'll try it. And then they've gone, hey, this solves problems for me. So there's things in them that solve problems. Um, I'm, uh, before the Agile movement blew up, I was writing this blog in the early 2000s. I started a master's degree and started using a blog as my professional journal, which was part of the course requirement. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then that blogging network was kind of exploding at the time. So I ended up connecting with this network of you know, IT bloggers, IT industry bloggers. And so I learned a bunch of stuff from those guys. And um, you know, and they weren't just men, but like they mostly were. But, but it was like this systems thinking lens that they put onto things. And these were all people that were like studying their profession and yeah. you know, really deeply knowing their craft and, and, and their practice was underpinned by theory. And so, you know, so at that time I was doing a master's degree, so it was like digging into the theory. And, um, and I kind of learned that, um, like I kind of had already stumbled across agile teams. My friend Andrew was running this XP team at, at ANZ Bank and I was next to him and one day I'm like, hey, what are you guys doing? And he's like, oh, this, this is the stand-up. This is, and he started to explain the XP stuff to me. And then, um, and then while I was doing the, um, the master's degree, there's all this kind of formal project management stuff. And then I was kind of, you know, putting the agile stuff next to it and just kind of doing a compare and contrast, just yeah. not for the course, but just mm. for myself because I started playing not holistically any one thing, but just a technique here. Mm-hmm. See how it went, and then a technique there, and see how it went. And I found generally if you apply a technique because you see a problem in front of you, mm. that works, mm. right? And then you do it again, and it works, and then you do it again, and it works, and then you add another one, and another one, and another mm. one. And there might be a time where you kind of go, okay, let's like go from tinkering with things to snapping into Scrum or whatever, Yeah. right? Um, and I've done that. Um, that's okay, right? Does it radically change anything? Not really. It probably fast tracks a couple of weeks of like kind of change, but mm. um, yeah, gives you an opportunity to sit down with people and go, "This is what we're going to do." I remember mm. when I first kind of went to formal Scrum instead of just grabbing parts. Um, I was working with this team in New South Wales, and, and we just spent maybe three or four months just kind of incrementing up to things, and then everyone went on summer holidays, and so then we took the first week back after summer holidays to go right from now on. We're going to just do Scrum by the book mm-hmm. until further notice. Right. And then did that, and you know it was ugly and awkward and horrible for the mm-hmm. first several weeks. But eventually the rhythm turned up, and everything started to work and flow, and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And then came a year later, the next summer holidays. <laughs> then we came back, and then it all fell apart. But it well, it know. accelerated back to performance much faster the yeah. second time. So it was only like maybe four or five weeks before it was kind of in rhythm again. And, mm. So it's not yeah. necessarily scrum, is it? It's just that. It's, Scrum is just like the tool to get the team in rhythm and get the communication amplified, right. maybe. Yeah, so I'd like, I mean, a couple of years ago at Aconex, we had one of our teams that was um, just, eh, you know, like just, it's funny, just isn't not it? feeling it, right? Sometimes teams just go bleh. Yeah, and, and every single teams that are super high performing, right, like, what's Every going single on? person on this team was brilliant, yeah, right? right? But they were just like not clicking, they were just yeah. not. Eh, eh, eh. And, they were very smart and they tried all these different experiments to try to get it right and they tried different ways of carving up the stories and different ways of visualising the work and, mm. you know, and all that sort of stuff. And like, this isn't a crap team. They were like deploying code at least once a week, mm. if not more. But, um, yeah, and, and very few customer complaints about the app. You know, I don't remember, you know, twice a year maybe a bug would turn up mm-hmm. like that, you know, people get interrupted for. Um, but, 
yeah, it just wasn't working. And um, I just kind of watched him one day and I just went, why don't you guys just try Scrum for the next two sprints, yeah. four weeks, and just see what happens. And I did. And it just kind of, what it did is it just reset everyone's expectations about their role and what they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? And just go back to basics. And they did it. A couple of weeks later, you know, four or six weeks later, they went, yeah, that was good, thanks. Um, are you still doing Scrum? No. But it was just good to kind of just mm. put our rhythm back in place and reset our expectations about who we are and what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. You seem to have this um, approach that, which is very much, like I can almost imagine that conversation happening, why don't you guys try Scrum? Mm. And they can as easily say, no, thanks, Craig. Thanks for your opinion. Yeah. And would that bother you? No, not really. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'm just here to offer a suggestion. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's times where, you know, you can clearly see what needs to be done and you mm. venture an opinion, but you don't want to impose it. And you go, why don't you guys blah, blah, blah. And then no one listens to you, right? And that's annoying, right? But rather than, like, force your hand, I think it's better to just kind of step back and let them feel the pain a bit more and then come back in with a slightly different solution, yeah. right? But, yeah, people like you... Don't let people fuck up. Don't let people kind of head down the wrong track. But, um, you know, you've always got a little bit of slack in your system that you can accommodate a learning experience. Mm. Um, Because, you know, the elastic effect of that, like, you know, you feel that pain, but then on the back of that pain, you're going to improve and everything's going to get better, right? So, Mm. Well, I guess you've had those conversations with other execs and, you know, there is a certain amount of maybe sheltering or buying time for the team or, you know, mm. protecting a bit of space so they have got slack. Yeah. And now you're probably having the same conversations with clients rather than peers that yeah. you're working with. Yeah. How does that go? What happens uh, when they say, come and do the Agile to us? Um, well, we're not really selling Agile as a competency. We're selling software development as a competency. And um, on that front... Well, same question then for engineering practices. Yeah, yeah. So on that front, we don't really talk about the engineering practices much, apart mm-hmm. from in the selling story. Mm-hmm. And then we just get on with things and do it. And then if they're, if they're kind of technical leaders and they're working with us, they're just quietly pleased that they don't have to teach us how to work. Yeah, right. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and if they're not technical people, they're quietly pleased that um, things quickly turn up instead mm-hmm. of waiting weeks or going, you know, the, 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 the development team going dark for like two weeks or mm. six weeks at a time, you know, just a couple of days later, stuff starts to emerge, right? Um, right, so I guess, what does that mean? Uh, it just means we, I don't really try to buy slack at this stage of the game. Um, uh, part of it's just expectation setting as well, mm. right? You know, what does it actually cost to do things? Mm. Probably where I... Where I fail on that front is people have unrealistic expectations of what it costs to build software. And they come and talk to me and then we go, well, it's going to be this much. And they go, well, I was thinking about one quarter of that cost. Yeah, well, somebody you were can, wrong. Somebody can quote you that. <laughs> yeah. But it's going to cost this much. Do, would you like to be disappointed now or yeah, yeah, in yeah, a couple yeah. of months? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, most, most in, the, in the startup world, most people then go, oh, shit, right? And then they start to recalibrate. And, yeah, they'll triangulate. They'll talk mm. to other people and, and then go, oh, okay. And sharpen up their ideas of what they need, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, with the um, enterprise customers that we're working with, um, I guess a lot of them have had bad experiences with offshoring development. And yeah. they, when they work with us, they generally are saying... Wow, how about that? It was easy. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just looking at the time. Do you reckon we're about to get kicked out? Just before I ask the next question. 
Hey, so we didn't get kicked out of the room and here's some important news about last conference in Melbourne. As you heard Craig say, the conference is now sold out. And if you're going, and I know a lot of our audience will be, I wanna tell you to get along to our session. It's by Ed O'Shaughnessy and myself, and it's called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And we'll be talking to a panel of luminaries from the Agile community. We're gonna be recording it live, and here's the lineup, so exciting. So we have Tom Varsavsky, who is the Chief Engineer at REA Group. We have Penelope Barr, who's previously was the lead of the Centre of Expertise in New Ways of Delivery and ANZ, and she actually has a new position, which I will not disclose now, but if you come along to our session, you'll probably find out about that. Um, and she was also the CEO of Cogent for a little while there. Um, she's also creator of Beautiful Agile, who make beautiful stationary um, products for facilitating agile ways of working in companies and in the home. We also are going to talk to Rick Wingfield, who's previously the GM of Innovation, Digital and Technology at Australia Post. He's currently the CTO at Catapult Sports. And he also used to be my CIO years ago as well, so he knows a lot of stuff about me. Uh, we're going to have Mike Barber, who is, comes from all the places, OzPost, MIAB, BCG, and is currently lead consultant at his organisation called Adaptovate and one of the fine people working on last conference itself. We're also gonna have Robin Elliott, she's the Senior Manager of Agile Methods and Practices at NBN, so she knows all about the challenges of scaling agile ways of working at the NBN. Renee Troughton, who um, is currently consultant at BCG and was also guest star of the weekly reboot in episode 11 of season one last year. Should also mention Penelope Barr was star of episode number 20 of this season of the we weekly reboot as well. And finally, we are also going to have Jeanette Peterson on our panel, who's currently Innovations Delivery Manager of ITS at RMIT University. So those are our luminaries. That will be our session. And we'll be digging into their collective experience to hear some real stories from the trenches of what it's like to implement agile ways of working across multi-multi teams in big, big organization. Can it be done? Should we do it? Does it work? Etc. 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 Let's find out if we did get kicked out of the room. No one there. No? Okay, good. Um, mm, 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 mm. You must have met a few famous Agilists over the years of just even guests speaking at last conference or mm -hmm. people that have toured. I imagine you've met Alistair. Old Doc Coburn. Yeah. Yeah, he's been to Melbourne several times. Yeah. There's a period where he's coming to Melbourne, he'd spend the first two nights at our place. Alright, <laughs> so we'd you know put, well. We'd put him up while he found his uh, Airbnb for the he's trip. He's so random, isn't he? He's a real nomad. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. he still doing that, travel the uh, world? I think, he's, I think he's slowing down on the travel, but yeah. he's skipping Australia at the moment. It's South America, USA and Europe still. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, I think he's trying to write another book on the heart of Agile at the moment, oh. which is why he's trying to plant himself somewhere. Probably really, Trying not yeah. to distract himself. Mm. Yeah. And what's he like to... As a housemate? Uh, well, pretty natural, yeah. You sit down and have a glass of wine and a chat, and yeah. he's an interesting character, he's eclectic, he knows a lot of stuff. Um, you know, like um, software development methodologies, is like he's got a PhD in that, he studied it, it's his career, but you know, he's much more interested in talking about outside of work stuff. Yeah, right. So travel and culture and dance and art yeah. and stuff like that. So, yeah, and people. Mm. I think he likes people a lot. I guess that's interesting, isn't it, right? So that then kind of is his lens on what Agile should be. It's a mechanism for, you know, it's a series of ideas and values and tools and whatever for people to work together, mm. right? 
Yeah, and over over the years when we were running the um, meetups here in Melbourne, the earlier years of the Agile meetups, um, for various reasons, different Agile luminaries would come to Australia. Mm -hmm. And so, if you got the chance, you would either get them along to a meetup, or if you didn't, you would like try to hook up with them and have a beer or a glass of wine or something in a bar and just chat to them for an hour. Um, yeah, I met a bunch. Not, a, I, you know. Um, can't even remember names at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, had Anyone that you haven't met that you'd love to meet? Uh, You're not that much of a star. star I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that boy. interested in. <laughs> I'm not that interested in the rock star thing. I'm more yeah. interested in just knowing people. Mm. And so I find the community we've got around Melbourne and and Sydney. I know to a lesser and Sydney and Brisbane and, and mm. now I'm starting to meet people in Adelaide. Um, yeah, there's there's just a huge variety of really interesting people. Agreed. Yeah. Right here. So, yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the great things about last conference is you see um, you see leadership emerge in, mm. in certain people. So I remember, I think I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think Neil Killick's first kind of agile conference was at last conference one year. Probably. I remember he ran out of time and we had to boot him out before he was finished. <laughs> but you know, since then he's gone on to be an international yeah. you know, agile hero and he gets flown around the world to conferences and so on. And then yeah, you know, another one's Rumor. We saw Rumor oh, really shine right. last year, and yeah. she's now kind of getting invited to talks and stuff. So yeah, you know, I, I I like that. Mm. Right? Yeah, and and the other thing is like the the agile luminaries essentially were older than me, but they're just like me, mm. and they're they're not weird. They're just professionals that like you know lucked out at a certain time to kind of hit yeah. the thing, right? Wrote, wrote the right book at the right time or capture yeah. the right yeah. idea. Yeah. And, and that blogging network that I was talking to you about, a bunch of those guys have ended up in similar kind of classes, right? Mm. So you know, leaders in their field, um, yeah either in project management or in consulting or whatever they went off to do. Mm. Um, yeah, and you know, so I guess that, yeah, whatever, it's just people really. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just people. Where do you think it's all headed, this? Where's Agile headed? Uh, well, Agile software engineering, um, yeah. technology teams, yeah. how p even the future of work, Yeah, you know, is having a job seeing it's in its death throes. Yeah. So um, Ranganathan and I had a conversation a little while ago about how long do you reckon it's going to be until software product development is a fully AI-driven process? Mm. Right. And your answer? 15 years maybe. Wow. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe 10, right? So, so suddenly the software development won't take a long time and cost a lot. Right. Right. Well, it continually gets faster, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, but you'll be able to scale it up a lot faster, a lot quicker. There's this guy, Raj, uh, who used to be a professor at Swinburne, um, who now may be at Monash or Deacon, I can't remember. But years ago, he showed me a little app that he built, a little app, voice controlled, we'll build mobile phone apps. Oh right, so God. you just talk about the hey, fields Siri. you want on it. Yeah, yeah. And so you would just describe what you wanted and it would assemble. Nice. And that exists? Yeah, like he never productized okay. it as far as I know. But, um, you know, the capabilities there. Right. Right. And it's just people assembling it the right way. Yeah. We'll get it to market. You know, there's all those back-end business rules and, you know, the complexity of managing concurrent services yeah. and, you know, all that sort of stuff still to be resolved. But but it's coming. Like, mm. I'm sure someone will be able to do it within... within. Just about the time that you and I would be ready to retire, I'd say. Uh, if you're willing to retire in the next two to three years. <laughs> no, it's, it's going to turn up in the immediate future. Yeah, right. It's just going to be the majority of work in 10 yeah. to 15 years' And time. so then what will we be doing those jobs? Well... You know, writing poetry, I guess. That would be nice. Right, hanging out in bars and you know, doing karaoke. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you know, so when we talk about 
the future of software engineering, well, you know, discipline in practice, culture, of course, is an important part of it, you know, that power dynamic. Um, it's interesting for me being a service company now versus being an employee mm-hmm. because I'm figuring that out, like how to be a service person. Mm. I'm figuring out how to be a salesperson. I don't really understand yeah, those guys. things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, but in the, in the delivery of software products, right, it's like, you know, that I guess Automation's always starts on that long tail, right? Mm. You know, it's the low value stuff that we don't want to do so we can focus on the high value stuff, right? So automation of software product development will hit that long tail stuff and then eventually, you know, it'll just work its way up that chain. So that means what we'll be doing is the more creative stuff, the more empathy driven stuff, mm. you know, um, all that. Stopping Black Mirror from being a reality. <sighs> or accelerating it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that. And then what does that mean for kind of ways of work and agile and all that sort of stuff? Um, you know, more and more customer-centeredness. But I think also more and more of community-driven as a platform for how you run your business. Yeah, right. right. Where a community of people coming together. Um, you know, for years people have been saying, um, you know, there's that photo that turns up on LinkedIn occasionally with Richard Branson, you know, make your staff happy and oh, they'll make your customers totally. happy, right? yeah. So just, um, you know, your workplace is a community. Right. Another thing that I think is going to be interesting is we're going to see the boundaries on organisations um, become more, what's the word, amorphous maybe? Yeah, um, working together more. Yeah, so you, you know, the, you're already seeing lots of it, like lots of companies are working with third parties or you know, partners or whatever mm. to kind of co-create things. But then I think that's going to be less and less project-based and more and more continuous mm. operating model. Mm. Um, and so all the, refri- the friction around getting those relationships started and... Yeah will go away. We had a, a couple of app ideas. One was going to be called Contractly and the other one was going to be called Procurify. Yeah. It's like it's such hell, mm. as you would know, yeah. trying to do business with some of these companies. I looked yeah. them up, both of them exist already. Right. Well, they should. <laughs> they should, but they're yeah. not good versions. So it's yeah. definitely, um, and you know, we were talking about the automation of, of legal stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Mm, those, so those areas have to be more customer-centric in terms of Yes, these two B two B organisations working together, right. um, and yeah, I, I agree. I think that's. I, I remember. I remember away. the first time I came across a tool called Pivotal Tracker. Did you ever yes. use that? Right, and whenever that was, like two thousand and six or something like that, um, the UI on it was so good compared to other tools that we were using at the time. Right, and of course, like it, it, it fails to compare to Trello, which yeah. is a better tool, and I'm sure that there's even better ones that are turning up now, mm. but. Um, you know, just that easy, intuitive way to work with the tool mm. really made it compelling to use. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and we need to be able to do that with contracts so I can say, ah, oh, I actually, mm. we need a couple more devs on this. I reckon Craig's got some. Let's yep. just, um, you know, what was the Commonwealth Bank? Cha-ching. <laughs> Let's yeah, just yeah. cha-ching yeah. a little agreement in place so we can work together for the next Yeah, totally, totally. I know a guy who, um, when, we, when we did the um, Aconex acquisition to Oracle, um, one guy that was working for me, poor bastard, had to go and assemble all the contracts, right? Oh, yeah. And then create metadata about all the supplier contracts that we had, right? just in the technology space, just in the product development space. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, possibly 3,000, I can't remember. Um, yeah, and at the back of that, he's got like this, uh, you know, it started as a spreadsheet, but of then he turned, you know, he, he turned it into an app. He built yeah, an app right. to do it because it was just going to be, given the volume of work, yeah, it was going to be more well. efficient, yeah, yeah. right? And so then he did that, and now I think they're using that as a tool. But, oh, yeah. You know, to have that sort of capability, right, saves thousands and thousands of hours. Yeah. And, you know, that adds up to millions of dollars. Mm. So, yeah. So somebody should go and 
Mm. And it makes starting the work um, faster as well, which is what people want to do. Yeah, and so reduces variability uh, and errors and gets yeah. everything done faster. Let's spitball this later, Craig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of your teams can knock it up for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's on your bucket list to do still? Uh, Apart from, it sounds like retire in two or three years, is that right? <laughs> You better, you better start blogging yeah. and monetizing that thing. Yeah, monetize the blog. <laughs> I monetized my blog once um, yeah. with Google Ads yeah. or AdSense, whatever it was called. Yeah. And after a month, I said, congrats, you've learned, you've earned 0.01 cents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I, like, back in those days, I, I put some Google Ads on my blog for a little what, while as well. Won't be retiring. Got, yeah, I think I got like $3.47. Yeah. I was like so impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Free money. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know, like, um, I, I just want to see our business kind of grow to a certain point and, you know, thrive as a kind of a, an organisation. I want to see our teams in Melbourne, Hyderabad, Bangalore, and maybe we'll open a fourth place. And um, I just want to see a place where people love coming to work and do all that sort of stuff. So, you know, back to that community thing, right? Like, mm. have, a, have a, a community of people that like, like working with each other and not just in the development centres, but also with our customers, right? Yeah. You know, ongoing relationships and, you know, rapport and people work with us maybe they have to go away for a while but they come back and yeah they know the people they're working with and it's friendships reacquainted yeah, and all that yeah, sort yeah. of stuff so i'd like to see that organization emerge um apart from that i don't know i'm not you know i wouldn't mind holiday it's the middle of winter i'm yeah. getting some sun but otherwise I, you know yeah very good um great i think i might leave it there seems mm. like a good logical spot mm. and you did say you had until two o'clock yeah cool mm. Okay, Tony, let's build that up now. All right. Thanks a lot, Craig. No worries. Well, that was Craig Brown. And any investors out there that want in on our app creation, please get in touch with us. Always happy to talk over coffee. Hey, one last thing before I go, which is a little bit of fun we were cooking up for last conference itself. And that is, have you ever wanted to be on a podcast, but don't know how or can't be bothered? figuring it out and staying up late on Thursday night like me, editing it every week. Well, we are running a little experiment to crowdsource a bit of content from last conference. So on the day, if you find yourself having an intensely good conversation or even an ordinary conversation, how about switching your smartphone to voice record and send us in a snippet to us at rebootme at rebootco.com.au and your audio might make it into a podcast episode. So we're going to tell you more about that on the day. Um, But what we're trying to do is to see how many extra little tidbits we can record from different people on the day. Thought it would be a bit of fun to see if it works. So if you know someone going to last conference who doesn't listen to us yet, please show them how to subscribe to our little podcast and get involved um, in creating a bit of content for us. You have been listening to the weekly reboot, your regular Friday debrief coming from the Agile community here in Melbourne and beyond and the last conference community here in Melbourne and beyond. Thank you for joining in and we'll be back in your ears again next Friday at 4pm. Bye. The weekly reboot is brought to you by Last Conference.